from Matthew 5, verse 23 through 24. Jesus said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's good to be here with you all this morning as we're able to gather here together. I apologize again for my microphone acting up. Um, I guess it's time for a new one. So Greg and I have troubleshot it, and every week I think something's fixed, and I think we're just fixing things as they're breaking in order, um, which I know we've all experienced that. It's inconvenient when it's inconvenient, but when it works, you don't even think anything about it. And so uh, it worked for 15 years. Now I need to think about it, I guess. So that's all right. It's good to be here with you all this morning as we gather here together to worship God. Today we're going to be bringing to close our uh, current sermon series that we've called Your Move, Board Games in the Gospel, or in the Bible. And I want you to know what an honor it is for me to be able to share this message that God has laid on my heart each week as I prepare the sermon. Uh, it's a privilege that I don't take lightly or granted or for granted, and I can't express to you how much I enjoy in sermon series like these, getting to think a little bit about the scripture, thinking a lot about what God is doing in our lives, and then trying to think of ways that you and I can find ordinary things that help us to connect and help us to get to thinking about the scripture in a different way and in a new way. And so before we begin, I want to remind you that our next sermon series, we're going to be starting next week. It's going to be titled, That's Good News, after the title of this book. Uh, our focus will be the word that begins with E, which is not email. It's evangelism. It's sharing the good news. And what I love in this book, and I'm just going to give it away now, is our job as Christians is to make the invite. It's God's job to do everything else. And I hope as you read this book and as you think it through over the next four weeks that God will reach and touch your heart and work on your heart as it has worked on mine in realizing that it's my job to present the gospel, it's my job to invite people to church, and it's God's job to work in their hearts as he does through the Holy Spirit and as he has done in the ways and in through your heart and in through my heart. And so last week I had a sign-up in the Welcome Center. If anyone would like a copy of the book, the sign-up is still there. I'll get them ordered tomorrow, and uh, I'll have the books by next week. If your preference is to read on an electronic reader, uh, there are electronic copies that you can go to wherever you buy your electronic books and do it that way. Uh, like I promised last week, I'm going to reference the book in the sermon, but I'm not going to give you a book report. So if you're like me and there's nothing you love more than sitting in a presentation and the presenter basically recaps everything that you have already read, I'm not going to do that, okay? But, uh, or I'm going to try my best not to. Um, you know, sometimes you get carried away. But what we have to do is we have to re reclaim what it means for us to be witnesses to faith as Christians. If you read in the book of Acts, this past summer I spent time in the book of Acts, and time and time again, the thing that, that is stressed the most, if you read in the book of Acts, is that the disciples were witnesses. Of all the things that they did, of all the places that they went, of all the, the trials that they faced and everything else, if you go read in Acts, it says time and time again that they were witnesses to what Jesus was doing and what the Holy Spirit had done in their lives. And all they did was, was serve as witnesses to that. As they share what they saw, as they shared what they had heard, 
And that's our job too. We have to be a witness, we have to invite, and then we have to let God do the rest. We have to do it in prayer, and we have to think about it prayerfully, and we have to prepare prayerfully. But it's our job to be the witness, and then it's God's job to work on people's hearts. And so today we're going to be wrapping up the sermon series, where, and we're going to be looking at a game that originated in England in the 1920s. The game was invented by a man named William Henry Story. Story received the patent for this game in 1929, and it quickly became a hit in England when it arrived in the United States in 1934. Parker Brothers, the game company, uh, advertised the game as the most fashionable and largest selling game in England. So you need to be fashionable if you're going to play this game. So that means I'm not going to be playing. Uh, the game was Sorry. And the reception of Sorry into American life was very much like how it had been received in England. It was a hit, and since 1934, it has been played and has continued to be a hit from generation to generation. If you were to look up the game Sorry, you would discover many games, like many games today, there are multiple versions that you can play. In addition to the different themed versions, you can also find different variations of the rules that can change how the game is played, which I had no idea about this when I started researching the game. There's different ways you can play as teammates. You know, there's four people that play, and so in teams of two or other, and I didn't go that much farther into it except realizing there were other rules. Uh, but when you play the game, the, game, the goal is the same. The goal is to get your four game pieces, like that one that I kind of poorly tried to recreate out of styrofoam. You move your four pieces around the board, and then you place your four pieces in the safe zone. Moves are determined not by rolling of dice or spinning of a wheel, but you draw cards and the cards have numbers on them and the numbers tell you what you're gonna do. Depending on the game, there's also different you know, pieces on the board that if you land on, you move back, you move forward, you go back, you know, go back to start, whatever it is. But you can move forward, you can move backward, you, can, you have to do whatever happens. And as you play the game, you can also knock your opponent back to their own starting place or trade places with them, and that's when you're supposed to say what? Sorry. One thing that makes sorry unique and lends to its name is if you draw a card and you can do the move, you have to do it. So you can't pass. You can't skip a turn. You have to do it, even if it hurts you, even if it sets you back, even if it sets your opponent back. All you can do is say sorry, and that's it. All you can do is say sorry. Oh, here's some of the cards. Although I pulled this up. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So this is apparently the, um, the Jesus version of sorry cards, <laughs> which I had no idea when I was making the slideshow earlier this week. And then last night I was looking at it, and I went, oh, wow. I found, um, but, you know, so uh, number six, move, one, move forward six spaces and then shout hallelujah. Um, then Jesus had 12 disciples move one, one, one pawn forward 12 spaces. So those are kind of fun. Not, I didn't do that on purpose, though, but that's okay. So all you can say in the game is sorry, right? When you move your piece, when you have to knock someone back, and when something happens. And that's how the game was set up. The purpose of the game, the point of the game, is to get your pieces all the way around. But that's really not how life is set up. That's really not how relationships are set up. Sometimes we cannot just say sorry and then move on with the game or move on with life. 
Sometimes our sorry requires more than just words. Because saying we are sorry can be some of the most powerful and some of the most important words that you and I can ever utter. And here's why I think that's true. If you look in the Gospels, I think we can see the importance of using this phrase, I'm sorry, in the teachings of Jesus. He used this short phrase, and he signifies to us how important it was to him that he included it as part of his Sermon on the Mount. You know, this is some of his most uh, consequential teaching, some of his most important teaching that, that you and I refer and that the church has looked to since he, he uttered those words. Jesus used this phrase, and he talked about what it means to be sorry in this important teaching, in this important sermon that he delivered to the people. And so today we're reading from Matthew's gospel as opposed to Luke in his account of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew begins chapter 5 by setting up what Jesus is about to do and by saying where he is teaching. If you look in Matthew 5 verse 1, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So when Jesus saw the crowds that were following him, he saw how large they were in number. He went to a hill to the place that he knew that the most people would be able to hear them. He sat down and he began to teach them. He's teaching the disciples. He's teaching everyone who has chosen to follow him, who has chosen to gather around him. We have to remember that the crowds that are around Jesus are both his followers. They're also his critics. And they're also the people that are just there because they're looky-loos and they want to see what's going on. And so as Jesus goes through this teaching, he looks at different areas of life, he looks at different areas of faith, and he takes the time to talk about the things that can get between us and others. And he lists the things that can break apart a relationship just as fast as they can help mend it. And he includes what it means for us to say we are sorry. Because he knew our lack of saying we are sorry can get between us and others in our relationships. It can also get between an obstacle that, that gets between our ability to worship and be in relationship with God. Our inability to be sorry like, truly affects everything. Which is why Jesus includes these two very short verses on being sorry and on restoring relationships right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at the scripture. Jesus has just taught about murder. Right before that, he talks about adultery. And then he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So I think Jesus, this is one of those teachings that has two meanings. The first is I believe that Jesus had two, is, is, is what he is saying is, is the two meanings are, are how our lack of saying sorry affects our relationship with other people, and then the other half is how it affects our relationship with God. Like many of his teachings, this teaching of Jesus, you know, ha has two interpretations. For those that are listening on surface level, and then like his parables, he would tell a parable. And for those that are listening on circus level, it made sense to them. But then later, what would Jesus say? He would say, all right, now let me tell you what this really meant. 
And he gathered disciples around him and he'd tell them what was happening and what was going on and what he wanted them to get from that parable that he had shared. I think this is the same way. Because if we oversimplify this teaching and just look at it on surface level, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, focus on your relationships between you and others. If you only focus on the tension and on the conflict that exists between you and someone else, you can do that and listen to Jesus' teaching. And to oversimplify it, I think what Jesus is saying and what we can get from it is if we only focus on this, I mean, it's a good thing, isn't it, for us to focus on repairing our relationships with other people? We can all improve our relationships with others, can't we? I don't know anyone who can look around and say, yeah, I have a perfect relationship with everyone that I know. But see, it'd be easy for us to oversimplify it and just focus on our need to seek forgiveness from someone else. I believe Jesus wants this of us. I don't believe he doesn't want us to seek forgiveness, but I believe he wants us to work on writing our relationship with others. But I believe there's also a greater reason that he wants us to do this. And here's the second level, because it affects our relationship with God. See, friends, Jesus told those who are listening to him that he doesn't want us to approach the altar where we are to meet God without getting rid of all the clutter that obstructs our relationship and our communication with him. I think at its core of what it means for, for us to be followers of him and for those who were listening to Jesus is he wanted us, he wanted them to look at how we might write our relationships with one another so that our relationships with one another don't be those things, don't become those things that are obstructions that obstruct our approach to God. I think that's why he included this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because I believe that Jesus knows that the risk that you and I run, the potential that you and I have to allow interpersonal conflict with others to upset our relationship with God. And so for Jesus, the consequence of that, and the reason that he wants us to heal our relationships is, is, so that we, is because these are things that have kingdom consequences. And kingdom consequences are, are those things that, that have far greater risk than us just being in conflict with someone else. They're things that, that don't just get between us and, and a friend, but they're things that get between us and God himself. So I think as Jesus is looking, he's looking and he's saying, you know, if, if your mind is so consumed with, with what you're doing and, and your relationship with someone else that when you come to the altar and you can't even focus on me, then you need to set that down and you need to go figure it out. Because those things that have kingdom consequences are those things that have, can have lasting effects on our Christian walk and on our journey with God. They're things that have the ability to cloud our mind. They're things that have the ability to obscure our view, to uh, obscure how we discern the work of the Holy Spirit or even see the work of God around us. See, friends, there is nothing greater than our relationship with God and with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that there's a battle over your heart. There's a battle over your attention. There's a battle over your mind. There's a battle over your relationships. There's a battle over everything. Because the evil one loves nothing more than to use your unresolved conflict to fuel the unrest and the uncertainty in your heart and in your mind. And when the evil one is able to get you focused on those things, then what are you doing? When you look to God, you're not looking to God. You're looking to clouds because things are cloudy. It obscures your view. 
It fogs your ears to where when God is speaking to you, you can't hear. It puts blinders on your eyes to where if the Holy Spirit is leading you or prompting you or or guiding you, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit's trying to do, you're not able to see it. And it also obscures our desire and our ability to discern what is happening or even to see God clearly. Friends, when we can't see God, when we can't hear God, when we can't discern what God is wanting of us, because we have unresolved conflict, what Jesus is saying to us is we have to get that figured out. And when it comes to others, so I'm going back to the the top level, but even when it comes to others, if we have this unresolved conflict, then, you know, we can't look at others and see their worth. We can't see their value. We can't hear what they're saying to us. We can't um, say what we need to say to them because there's a battle that's happening. Because in every way, our conflict obscures who we are and causes us to focus all our attention on those unresolved things. Because he uses, the evil one uses those situations to bring to our mind when we're trying to worship God. I don't know about you, but I can't talk to God when I have something else clouding my mind and my attention. It's hard to worship God when there's something else that you're sitting in worship and that's all you're thinking about. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is we have to identify those things that have kingdom consequences and we have to invest our time and our energy into them. See, I don't think the evil one causes us to sin. I don't think the evil one causes you to, to, to focus your attention on all of these things. But I think what, what he does is he causes us to, to, to just get enough doubt to where we shift our focus, to where uh, we shift what we're looking at. We, we shift what we're doing. And we get distracted. We get angry. We get disconnected, whatever it is. And these unresolved issues become the wedge that's driven between us and God. To where we devote all our time and energy on conflict, on being upset, on feeling upset. Until we look around and we found that we've wandered ourselves further and further away from God. So how do we fix it? For us to offer God our true worship and our full attention when we come to his altar, we have to focus. We have to focus on asking Jesus to help us identify those things that we place between ourselves and him, even those relationships. We have to identify those things that we know cloud our mind and keep us from worshiping God. When we identify those things, we have to give them to him. And in giving to them, to him, we have to trust that when we give them to Jesus, he can take them, and even better, he has already borne them onto his shoulders because he took them to the cross. Friends, there's nothing more you need to do except let go. Now, is that easy? Sometimes no, sometimes yes, but we have to let him have them. We also have to seek forgiveness. We can't be ones who choose to serve Jesus himself in the same way that Jesus chose to serve us. If we're allowing all of our time and all of our mental energy and everything else be devoted to conflict, we can't open our hearts to God and worship if we have something else on our minds. We can't come to the altar if we've piled too many things in front of it. You just can't do it. There isn't room, there isn't emotional room, there isn't mental room, and we have to let it go. 
And part of letting go means doing like Jesus instructed and going to another and asking forgiveness in order to remove the obstacle that we've placed between us and God, in order to clear the fog that we've allowed to obscure our view of God, in order to clear our ears so that we can hear what God is saying to us. And see, here's the thing, is if you go and ask forgiveness, how quickly someone else accepts your apology and forgiveness is not up to you. Because you can't make them do that, can you? But what we can do is we can express our sorrow. We can express and ask for forgiveness. And we can remove that as an obstacle that's between us and God. Because you're the only one that can do that for yourself. Right? I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We have to do it for ourselves. Because Jesus wants us to be able to say we're sorry so that our conflict no longer keeps us from worshiping God and from engaging in those things that have kingdom consequences. Because Jesus wants you to worship fully with your heart, your soul, and your mind and your strength. And to do that, we have to remove the obstacles between us and others and between us and him because those are the things that have kingdom consequences. Amen.